0: We're going to be in chapter 4 again this morning. We've been looking at Jesus's divine appointment, right, as we've been calling it with this woman at the well in Samaria, this Samaritan woman. And this morning, we're going to really see what brought this conversation to an abrupt end. Partly, it was God's timing that brought it to an end. and Partly, it was because of the mic drop that Jesus gives us in verse 26. Um, because this woman gets so excited that she runs back into town and basically her life and those around her lives are changed forever because of what she just heard Jesus said and because of this conversation. We're also going to see the disciples' lives are going to change. But their their lives change a little bit more gradually. And that's because they're learning. Jesus has got them in the school of discipleship here. And we're going to see this morning how Jesus disciples his disciples and what he's going to do and I believe what he's doing with us today and every disciple that's ever come out of this time period and every disciple that goes forward Jesus Christ is trying to adjust our thinking to match his easier said than done because we've got a room full of people here we've got some people listening I'm sure online who go to the Bible and who want to do what the Bible says we want to change our mind to match the mind of Jesus Christ. We want to see life through the lenses that Jesus Christ looks at. And yet, if we're honest with ourselves, that's harder. That's not as easy as it looks. In fact, oftentimes, how do, we, how do we reflect on something and go, wow, I just really blew that. Wow, I just, <laughs> I didn't handle that right. Wow, I, I was so focused on this, I missed the main picture. We're going to see that Jesus is going to challenge their thinking this morning. He is trying to shift their value system. He is trying to shift their priorities and how they make their priorities. He's trying to adjust all of these things as we're going to see in their life. And before we jump into verse 27, let's get kind of a running start because number one, 25 and 26 is context, but, but quite frankly, it's just fun to read again. This is just a mind-blowing Thing that I would have, I would pay millions of dollars to be a fly on the well to have watched this in person, honestly. And, and you see it here in verse 25. The woman said to him, Remember, she's, he's pushing her toward a decision. She's just kicking the can down the road. She's like, All right, all right. I know that Messiah is coming who's called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Implication when he comes, I'll do what he says. When he comes, I'll actually believe it. Just kicking the can down the road. And I just, I love Jesus. This is, you know, I, I'm sorry. I'm just excited. I, I think this is what eternity is going to be like. You know, just visiting with Jesus. I mean, we think we know things about him. We think we know him now. I think he's going to be blowing our mind millions of years into eternity just like this. Can, I mean, can you fathom a person like that? And we get a glimpse of them here and sometimes in the gospels, but verse 26, Jesus said to her, I, who speak to you, am he boom? I mean, mic drop. I mean, that is just incredible. And we looked at it last week. Not only does he say I, that, that I'm he, but notice he is in italics, right? You, you notice that in your Bible. That means it's not there in the Greek. And what does it mean? I am that I am, ego a me. He's gonna keep using that phrase and he's tying our minds back to Exodus 3.14, the burning bush in the wilderness. Just, Just incredible what's going on here. So you can see why this lady is pumped. You can see why she's excited, okay? I think she got some of this. And so we get the conversation interrupted at this point. Verse 27, it reads this. And at this point, his disciples came and they marveled that he talked with a woman. Yet no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? And so we see it at, at this point, their timing was impeccable. And, and I think even more impressive, God's timing was impeccable. Because he had sent these guys off to get distracted in town, going in to food. So Jesus could have this uninterrupted time with this woman. When Jesus was done, then they showed up. And that timing was just incredible. And it tells us that they marvel. Now, notice they didn't marvel because he had just revealed himself as the Messiah to the Samaritan woman. In fact, we can't really go to any of the gospel accounts and find Jesus Christ at this point in his ministry having said something this clearly, even to the disciples. So they're getting, she's getting information that they haven't gotten as clearly as they have at this point. And so you'll notice they don't marvel because he identified himself as Messiah. That's not what the text says. They marveled that he talked to a woman at all. They're, they're shocked. And again, their cultural biases are like, why is he talking to a woman? They're, they're marveling at that. In fact, the word marvel means to wonder or to be struck with admiration or astonishment. The idea is that they were blown away. Now we've looked at that culturally, why that's the case, because remember a Jewish man, typically would only speak to a woman in public if it was his mother or his wife. He would pretty much ignore every other woman, let alone a Samaritan woman, right? And so this was just highly unlikely in terms of culture. So they're, they're just shocked that he's alone with a woman. He seems to be speaking to her. And yet it's really fascinating, um, which oh, by the way, you know, just these little tidbits come up, but these guys had just got back from, from this town in Samaria. And guess how many Samaritan women they had probably ignored on the way there and on the way back? Probably a, a hundred or more, right? So they're, they're following cultural protocol here. Jesus is outside of cultural protocol, but he's not doing anything wrong spiritually. Nowhere in the Bible can you see men should not talk to women in public. That was a, a Jewish societal cultural uh, almost overprotection uh, for some improprieties, but he wasn't doing anything wrong. It was just against the cultural norms. And um, one of the things that you'll see is they said, yet no one, they, they marveled, they're blown away, but they didn't want to ask him what he was doing or why he was doing it. You, you kind of picked that up in verse 27. And, and part of the reason I think is they, even at this point in his ministry, they had this implicit trust and respect for him. They may not understand why he's doing it, but they say, you know, if he's doing it, he's got a good reason. In fact, when you think about the questions that they asked, to have asked him, what do you seek, may have implied that Jesus was trying to get something from her. And even that question would insinuate that he needed something from someone like her, and it would be highly insulting potentially to Jesus. So they couldn't even really ask that question without insulting Jesus. In fact, it would have been unimaginable for the average Jew to think that they needed anything from a Samaritan, a Samaritan woman, an immoral Samaritan woman. I you just keep going down this, the, the line. It would have been unimaginable to think that they would ever need anything from a woman like that. So they understand that. They're not going to ask him that. And then to have asked him, why are you talking with her, may have implied that Jesus was behaving inappropriately. Like, why are you doing that? You Don't you know better than... Kind of that implication. So they don't ask these things. Again, it wasn't spiritually a taboo. It wasn't like you could go to the Old Testament and find some verse that said, men shall not, you know, talk to women, you know... When you're trying to put a command, you got to put it in King James English, right? It said, he shall not talk to a woman. And you can't find that in the Bible. So it was a cultural deal, but they choose not to ask him. And so one of the things that is so amazing, we've kind of alluded to it a couple of times. This woman, the conversation is so incredibly exciting to her that notice what she does in the next verse, verse 28, then the woman left her water pot and went her way into the city. She, she literally, the whole purpose she came to the well for, she forgot about. That's how excited she was. she just, just kind of neat to, to see that excitement in somebody. And, and she said to the men, Come see a man who told me all things that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? Then they went out of the city and came to him. And so, again, the very reason she came out to the water pot she leaves without her water pot. She just, she just drops them there. And it's one of those things that she, the, the news that she just received was so earth shattering that she just totally forgot. I mean, and, and just imagine the, the irritation as we've described, carrying a water pot up to the well, digging the water out of the well, filling it up, carrying it home. You know, you don't wanna make that trip back and forth multiple times. And she doesn't even care. She's so excited about what she's heard. She's forgotten all about the water, which is incredible. But I I do like what one commentator said. He said, she came with the water pot and she left carrying the whole well. And I love that because she had believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. And now what did she possess that Jesus said he could give to her? Living water that sprung up to what? Everlasting life. And so she came with a water pot. She left with the whole well, as this commentator said. So she's very excited about that. Now, there is a practical thing. She Maybe she left it for Jesus and his use, maybe to get a drink of water. Maybe that was there. But it does seem like her excitement is really what's driving her into the city. Now, notice she says something to the men in the city. Very specific. You can see that in the verse. She, she comes to the men. She tells the men, and she says this to the men. She says, come see a man who told me all things that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? And she uses this word, see, which means to perceive by sight of the eye. And what she's trying to do here is she's trying to get the men of the city to come out and actually lay eyes on Jesus Christ, talk to Jesus Christ, consider Jesus Christ, what he's saying, what he's claiming, but to actually come out and lay eyes on him. This is what she's trying to uh, to get done. In fact, it makes sense that she would go to the men because in this culture, the men of the city of Sychar would be the ones to officially recognize if Jesus was the Messiah. It was their responsibility as the spiritual leaders of their religion to do that. And remember, they were looking for a Messiah. Even the Samaritans were based on the prophet prediction by Moses in Deuteronomy 18. They were looking for Messiah. So it was going to be their job to identify if this was officially him. So she goes to the ones, the decision makers, and notice her strongest argument. If you go back to the text, what is her strongest argument? It's there in verse 29. Come see a man who told me all things that I ever did. That's her argument. Come see a man that told me all things I ever did. It's just kind of a uh, an interesting way to put it. Now it is possible we don't have the details of the entirety of the conversation. That, that does happen where uh, the biblical writers re- record the conversation, but they include the details that are pertinent to moving the story forward. We don't get all of the details. It is possible um, that that's the case, um, but it's also possible that she's using this phrase to simply describe what we do have recorded. Remember, Jesus said, you've, got, you've had five husbands, and the man that you're living with now, he's not your husband, right? He, he knew this specific level of detail Concerning her and her personal marital history and status. You know, he didn't say, Yeah, you've had multiple husbands. That's kind of generic. I mean, he named them five. He's like, You got five, you've had five. Specific number, like I've joked before, he probably could have named given their names, right? And the scenarios behind why the marriage is dissolved. He, he, he knew things about her, and this very much impressed her. And this was going to be her strong argument. So we don't know, again, are we lacking some details? We might be. But even the details we have are pretty uh, impressive. And, they, and she was very impressed with Jesus. That's, I guess, the main point. Whatever he told her, she was impressed. Enough so that she abruptly left her water, part, water pot and ran back into the city. I like, uh, again, the the commentators this week, they really had some great one-liners. So I've got a couple of more uh, from the commentators. But this must have been um, a Baptist commentator because he's got some alliteration in there. That's always kind of the big joke, you know, um, with Baptist churches. But anyways, he, he said that she came to the well as a Samaritan sinner, and she left the well as a Samaritan soul winner. And we're going to see that bear out over this week and next week, that her message that what she shared was convincing enough to get people to start coming out to Jesus. And there's gonna be a harvest that's gonna be had as a result of Jesus's interaction with her and multiple, multiple people harvest. But it's really interesting because if you notice her next statement, it almost it almost seems like she's got some doubt, doesn't it? In fact, you, your, your English texts bring up the, the question mark there really well. I and mean, that's exactly what she says. She's not saying... Hey, this is the Christ. Come see a man that told me everything I ever did. This is the Christ. She's saying, come see a man that told me everything I did. Could this be the Christ? She asked the question. And in the Greek text, it anticipates a no answer. And you're like, wow, is she doubting here? Is that what's going on? I think there's something a little bit more subtle going on here that we want to keep in mind regarding the context and who she is and who she's talking to. She's doing so, she's looking for verification in her question, but she's doing so in such a way that they don't immediately dismiss her claims because of who she is. See, she knows who she is culturally. She knows the standing that she possesses culturally. She understands not only uh, as a woman, would her testimony not be valid in a court of law in that day, but she also understands that she is an immoral woman. She's a social outcast even in her society. And so she, I think, wisely knows that if she comes in barnstorming, knocking doors down, saying, this is the Christ, I know it is, I, this overconfident, adamant assertion, they might reject her outright. So I think she strategically comes in, says, this is what this man did. Could it be him? And it almost invites further investigation. In fact, that's what we having this next point, it's she's inviting further investigation. She almost uses, I think, reverse psychology. I don't know if that's the best description of what's going on, but I think she's sensitive that if she oversells this, they're going to reject her outright. And so she treads lightly. She's trying to get them out because I think she's confident. If they meet this man, they'll know. If I can just get them out to him, they'll get it. They'll understand what I'm saying. And so we see that it worked, right? Uh, verse 30, it says they went out of the city and they came to him. We're going to see later on because you're going to see there's a break in this conversation. There's a, there's, uh, you know, a sidebar. There was some, a conversation that was going on while she left and before they came back with the disciples. But we're going to pick that conversation back up in verse 39. And one of the things that we see is it says they came to him. Verse 30 tells us, imperfect tense in the Greek, it's got the idea that they continued coming out to him, that there was this continual stream of Samaritans from Sychar that just continued to pour out of the city to go and see this man that has told her everything that she ever did. And as I mentioned, we're not going to pick up this conversation anymore or this description of this, this response from the Samaritans until we get to Verse 39. Everything in between now is going to be a private conversation between Jesus and his disciples. Jesus is now going to take this situation and he's going to utilize it like disciple makers do, right? We, we talk about Matthew 28, 19 and 20 all the time. The, the one command in the Great Commission is to make disciples. Then we've got three participles there that explain how you make disciples. Go, teaching and baptizing, right? Those are the three explanations of how you make disciples. But we think often think of go as a command. It's actually better translated, as you are going. As you are going about life. It's not a special event. It's not a six-week Bible study. It's not a program. It's as you go about life. As you go about life, learning to point people to Jesus Christ, then getting out of the way and letting them follow Jesus Christ. That's disciple-making in a nutshell. And so we're going to see Jesus do this. Because he's got this private conversation. It's as he's going, as an opportunity arises with his disciples, he's going to take advantage of the opportunity. Now, you remember why the disciples had gone into town? They were tired. They were leaving Judea. They were going up to Galilee. They had to go through Samaria. We looked at a a topographical map of the mountainous terrain in Israel. So by the time they get to Samaria, they're worn out. They're tired. They're hungry. They're thirsty. They say, Jesus, you sit here at the well. We're going into town to get some food, and we'll be right back, right? And so now they arrive with with the value meal from McDonald's, right? They're, They're like, hey, Jesus, we got you covered, man. We got your Big Mac meal here. You need to eat, and you need some sustenance because... You're worn out just like us. And this is what we read in verses 31 through 33. In the meantime, his disciples urged him saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat of which you do not know. Therefore, the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him anything to eat? Don't you love the disciples? I love those guys. I cannot wait to meet them one day. They're just like me. That's what I would have been like. What? What? Did we miss something here? How to get, it? How to get food? I love those guys; they're a lot of fun. But, anyways, he—they're saying, "Hey, uh, you, you know, you need to eat." And and now we're going to witness. This is just a great example here. How does how did Jesus disciple his disciples? We're going to get to see uh, and get a little bit of insight here on how he do it, how he did it. And he is attempting, and I'm just going to keep saying this probably, he is attempting to influence how they think. The Christian life, I would argue is one right here between the ears. On a day-to-day, moment-by-moment basis, who or what are you presenting yourself to? Who or what are you trusting in? The problem with many of us, myself included, is we are very good and well-trained at walking by sight. That is our natural default mode. We do the opposite of Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. We don't trust the Lord, and we are really good at leaning on our own understanding. We are really good at ignoring him in all things and acknowledging ourselves in all things. And we need a paradigm shift. And it's not gonna happen if you just roll out of bed, fall on your Bible every morning. That ain't gonna happen. It just doesn't happen naturally. There's some intentionality in the way that we think. And this is what Jesus is going to show them. You know, we make thousands of choices any given day. Do you realize that? Thousands of choices any given day what percentage of those choices do you even look to the Lord for? That's a personal question. Man, if I st- and if I'm stepping on your toes, trust me, I've blown all 10 of mine off this week thinking about this. So, so hang in there with me. This is this is designed to encourage us because I don't want to live life without the hand of my Savior in mind. And I believe that that's how you wanna live life too. Hand in hand, Jesus Christ. Let's walk, let's walk, let's enjoy each other. And so we're gonna see that he's gonna challenge the way they think because the way you think influences what? How you act. The way you think influences what? How you prioritize. You have some invaluable resources at your disposal. And I'm not talking about your money. Some of you might have money, good for you. That's another resource you've got. I'm talking about your time. I'm talking about your gifting. I'm not talking about uh, your energy. I'm talking about what you think about, what you make yourself available to. Those are all resources that every person in this room possesses. And I know that because you've got a body and you're breathing. And I know you've got resources. We've all got resources. But if we're not thinking biblically, we're gonna squander those resources. If we're not thinking the way Jesus is thinking here, we are going to just totally miss out on the benefit of utilizing those resources, the way God would have you use them. And we can see it in the life of Jesus. We know God's got a purpose for Jesus, but do you know God's got a purpose for you too? Do we, do we individually understand that? That no, God puts nobody out to pasture? You're not a cow. You're not old Bessie. There's no old Bessies in the Christian life, right? We all have a use to the Lord, and we've got to see that as Jesus is causing them to think. And I believe that He's fighting against the same things then as we are fighting against today. And this is culture, worldly, religious thinking here, and that's why I believe this battle, this conversation, is not going to be one in one conversation. This is why, as you look at the Gospels, we we hold the disciples to such a high standard. We're like, well, Jesus already told them this. Yeah, once. How many times do we need to be told something before it actually clicks in and we can actually execute it? I'm embarrassed to say there's some that I think the, the number's still counting. Uh, the, the, the number counter is still tallying how many times I must need to hear it because I keep failing in certain areas. And I just, uh, you just wonder. And, and so it's, it's going to be an uphill climb. It's not going to be one in conversation. He's slowly chipping away at their thinking. And this is very good. And, and so this is one of those things that sparks his discipleship opportunity. And so he's going to use it. They say, Rabbi, eat. Which makes perfect sense. That's why they went into town. They brought food to him. Rabbi, it's time to eat. You, you can replenish yourself now. And this is where Jesus' response throws them off. He's like, I've got food to eat of that you don't know about. And they're like, what? What is he talking about? They're so confused by this statement. In fact, they say, has anyone brought him something to eat? Maybe they thought the Samaritan woman had provided food for him at some point. They saw this woman leave in the well. Oh, maybe she had food with her. Maybe sheep they're thinking logically, maybe a merchant had come by while, while they were talking and provided some food. They're, they're kind of thrown off here. Clearly they're thinking on a, on a physical level, which by the way, so would we be, I believe we would be thinking on a physical level because he was tired. He was hungry. They don't realize that he's trying to teach them something yet. They're going to see, but he's going to go again from the natural and he's going to transition to the spiritual. And again, he's done that with Nicodemus in chapter three. He just got done doing that with the woman at the well in chapter four. He's using the same kind of process, but a little bit different with his disciples, unique for them this time. And it's a teachable moment. He doesn't squander a teachable moment, he takes advantage of a teachable moment. Now, by the way, is Jesus at this point still tired? Yes, I believe he is. Is he still thirsty? Yes, I believe he is. Is he still hungry? Yes, I believe he is. But what he's gonna tell us is, those things can't distract me from God's purpose and will for my life. They're, they're necessary, but in moments like these, I'm not gonna let those things distract me from these opportunities that God has designed for me. And that's the mindset I think he wants to bring through to each one of us and to his disciples. And see, we think we see things clearly, and we don't oftentimes. How many times in your life, and I don't care how old you are, you may have an experience like this, where you saw a situation, you were going through it at the time, you saw it clearly, you just knew it, you saw it clearly, you were so convinced you saw it clearly. And then later on, you gained additional information. and You say, wow, I didn't see that clearly at all. I was, I was missing some pretty key data points, but I, five days ago, I was super convinced this is the way it is. And so oftentimes, we do that even in spiritual things. We will, we will justify an action or a decision that we've made. And yet we missed out possibly on an opportunity that the Lord had for us. And so Jesus is going to explain his statement further. He's going to take this physical uh, to spiritual. And he's going to use this illustration. And what he's going to say here uh, in verse 34, he says to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. You see, I've got food that you don't know of. My food is to do these two things. This is how I get nourished. Is what he's saying. Now, Jesus is now giving a real life example of what happened in the wilderness in his temptation. Remember Matthew 4. Satan tempted him with turning the stones into bread. And how did Jesus respond? It seems like an odd response, especially when you're 40 days fasting, you're hungry. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. See, man thinks in terms of physical sustenance. You know, if we were to go a little bit long on the sermon this morning, many of us would be looking at our watch going, man, lunch is going to be really late today. I mean, 1230, I'm going to have to wait till 1230 to eat. And, and we would, as an American culture, we would freak out on stuff like that. It's, I mean, God forbid we went to one. Oh, I don't think I'm going to make it, you know? I mean, it's so, it's so incredible the way that we think that way. And here's Jesus who's literally been hiking through the mountains, who, who is famished and exhausted. And you know what? He saw a spark of life in a woman that everyone else would have considered worthless. And he's like, game on. Like, this is what I'm here for. This is what I live for. I'll get to the food. I mean, I, he still had a physical body. He needed food, no doubt about it. But he's like, game on. This is what I live for, and I'm going to take advantage of this opportunity. And that was his mindset. It wasn't like, yeah, I'll get to that after I get my Big Mac wolf down. I'll get to that after I drink my Diet Coke. That's always kind of a joke, right, Big Mac? Super Size, Diet Coke. Man, just go all in. <laughs> get the good Coke. But, but he's not saying that. That's not his mindset here. And so it's a great real life example of this truth that's communicated in Matthew 4.4. Food in general, when we talk about food, it is designed to sustain your body. It is designed to provide necessary nutritional elements. Your body uses it to convert it to muscle and energy. It it has a, a role of assisting blood and oxygen flow to different parts of your body. All of these things are true. And what Jesus is going to say, just like physical food does that for the spiritual body, these two things do that for my spiritual sustenance. What two things are they? Well, we're going to look at really his two priorities here in life. And and it's amazing to get into the mind of Jesus Christ because he's going to walk through these priorities. and, And I want you to notice the focus on these two things. Go with me. Uh, now to verse uh, thirty-four again, and let's just kind of look at the focus of these two things: my food, my sustenance, what, how I survive, what I live for, is to what? Number one, do the will of Him who sent me, and number two, to finish His work. Whose work? His work. He's not even talking about. Jesus is not even thinking in light of what He is doing. He's thinking in light of what He is doing, which reflects what. God the Father wanted to accomplish. See, his focus is on God the Father. And so there's some lessons we can learn here, and we'll kind of bring those out as we go. And so the first priority that he gives, the first reason uh, that he lives is to do the will of him who sent me. And he specifically wants to do it. He wants to execute it. He wants to accomplish God the Father's will. He is so occupied on God the Father's will. In fact, when he knows and understands that he is fulfilling the will of God, it's like food to him, it sustains him because this is what he lives for. And the word will here, uh, it's a long definition here. It's the idea of uh, an inclination of pleasure towards something that which is liked. The suffix ma is added to the end of that word. It indicates the result of the will. And so what does all that mean? Well, it means this. The mindset of Jesus was living life in light of the father's desires for him. That was all the sustenance that he needed spiritually. For him, living life for the father was the only thing worth living for. That is, that is an impressive statement because here we've got God the Son who's basically yielding his own will to the will of another, saying, I live for him. And you know, the same thing should be true of the believer in Jesus Christ, right? And we, we see this kind of borne out um, in the scriptures. But even as Jesus gets up to the point of his torture and crucifixion, as he's leading up, you guys know this verse because it's very popular. But he says, not my will, but yours be done. See, even all the way to the end, he's still thinking about what God wants to accomplish, what God desires for his life. He's not even considering himself. That's what Philippians 2 tells us. He led out in his life thinking of the good of others. And this is how he lived, exactly like this. See, the disciples are thinking about food, I think the disciples would say, yeah, um, here's some ministry opportunities over here. Okay, we'll get to that. Let me eat first. Let me eat first. Let me drink first. Let me sleep first. Let me go, you know, bury my mom and, and I got a new cow, right? I mean, the, <laughs> the, the gospel story, right? I've got all these other things and I'll get to ministry. And people will do that today. They'll say, yeah, once I, once I um, have kids, I'll get involved in ministry. Then you realize, whoa, that's a lot of work. You're like, well, once the kids get out of the house, then I'll be involved in ministry. Once I get to this stage in my job, then I'll be involved in ministry. Once I retire from my job, then I'll be involved in ministry. Once I get my cataract surgery or my, my hip replaced or my knee replaced, then I'm gonna be involved in ministry. And there's always a carrot out there that we just keep pushing out because we're not thinking this way. We're not thinking, it's all about my will. When am I willing to do that? And, and we've gotta just scratch that out of our mind. It's not about my will. It's about what does God want to accomplish through me? And I look out, I, I, I see faces that I recognize this morning. And I just, I am so encouraged when I talk to many of you because I think God has got a, a great plan for your life. And I know he does because I see it described in the word of God. And each one of you have different skills and gifting that, that I quite frankly, I'm impressed with. And I enjoy knowing you. And I know that you're not the right tool for every job. I'm not the right tool for every job. But I know collectively, we can do something in this community. Jesus Christ wants to accomplish something in this community through these broken vessels known as the one sitting next to you, your neighbor, right? He wants to do that. And I know that he can. I believe that he can. But we've got to collectively and individually begin to bump into this type of thinking more consistently and just be available. And this is what Jesus is saying. I live, I get my spiritual trousers on in the morning, every morning. I get my sandals on every morning. And this is what I go out the door looking for. This is what I think about. This is what I desire. And the same mindset as I've said should be our desire. You know that one of the great verses here, I think, for each one of us is Ephesians 2.10. Let's just go there. I know uh, we, we talk about this often, but it's been a little while since we've talked about this. But Ephesians 2.10, we know God's got a will for Jesus's life. We know God had a, God the Father had a will for what he, he wanted to accomplish in Jesus's life. We're all convinced of that. But you know that he's got a will for what he wants to accomplish in your life? This is... This is again; it's a mind-blowing truth that once we grasp, will never will never be the same mentally. It's going to uh, startle our thinking, if you will, and that's exactly what I think it's designed to do. Ephesians two ten: for we are His workmanship. Uh, it's the Greek word poema. It means you are His masterpiece. Now. It's hard to think of myself personally, and I'm sure as many of you can relate, as a masterpiece. I, I feel more like the master of disaster sometimes, right? But in God's mind, he is weaving something together for you in your life. He is going to accomplish. He wants to accomplish things in and through your life. He has a will for your life. And notice what it is as it's described. You are his masterpiece you have been created in Christ Jesus for good works. And then notice the type of good works that he wants you to walk in. It's not the good works that you want to walk in, that you determine you're going to do, that you're going to fight hard to make happen. That's not the goal at all. Don't hear in this message, hey, you better get busy. You better get active. You better start serving. You better, that's not the message. If, if you hear that, I'm sorry. That's not what I'm teaching. I don't believe that's what Jesus is teaching. But here it is, he's created you in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That means that God looked down through history. He saw you, he saw your gifting. He saw you in time and space history. And he said, I want this dear beloved child of mine to walk out these good works that I've designed for them. Do you know that you are specifically on the mind of God? When we look at passages like this, and some of us just think we're wandering through life, you know, just bumping into things once in a while. No, God's got a plan. He loves you. He's determined to love you for eternity. And you can't change his mind. I love that about our God. And he's got a plan for you, and he wants to accomplish it. And so the mindset is not, hey, let me get active and get busy and start running around like a chicken with my head cut off doing all this activity. It is, I just want to do your will, period. And we begin to look up a little bit more. Again, Jesus was definitely physically hungry. He was definitely tired. But as I mentioned before, he had seen this spark of life in the Samaritan woman, and he was like, game time. (laughs) It's what I live for. The food can wait. I'll get to the Big Mac later. I've got ministry right now. I've got this opportunity because God wants to do something in and through my body right now, and I'm going to be available. That's the idea. And so we see his second priority, just a, an incredible statement here. He he wants to finish his work. Whose work again? We've noted it's God the Father's work. And, and Jesus recognized something that's very important, I think, for each one of us to recognize. Everything that you do on a day-to-day basis is designed to complete the work of that day on behalf of your father. We don't think about that. We, I know I'm, well, I shouldn't include you with my failures. I'm assuming you fail like me sometimes, but maybe you don't. But I just, you, you get to the end of the day and you wonder what you accomplished. You, you wonder what you did. It just seemed very just generic, like nothing really happened or went on. Um, and yet there's opportunities even in the mundane to bring glory to your Father and to do something that he's tasked you with to accomplish. And you know, this is why in Jesus's high priestly prayer in John 17, and then he repeats it on the cross in John 19, we talk about that a lot, right? Tetelestai, it is finished. But he says this in in John 17, I have finished the work you have given me to do. That's what Jesus Christ lived for, was to finish the work that the Father gave him to do. And see, Jesus recognized something that I think he wants all of us to recognize. If you are on this earth, you are on assignment. You have an assignment. You you have been given an assignment. There's something that God wants to accomplish in and through you. And, And rest assured, we're not trying to put extra burden on you because Jesus's burden is easy and light. We just want you to know you're valuable to God that God has a plan, that you're not worthless, that you have no purpose. You've got a great purpose. You've got a great purpose in this local church. You've got a great purpose in this local community. We all don't have the same jobs. That's, t- that's good. Trust me, if we all had the same job, we'd probably be fighting a lot more. And so it's, it's nice to have unity. We're working together for the same purpose and the same cause. But Jesus finished The work that the father gave him to do. That word finish means to complete, to make perfect by reaching the intended goal. I love this story. I was really encouraged as I read this this week. There was a a believer who was on his deathbed and a friend stood over him because uh, as someone is dying, if you've ever uh, had that opportunity, and I would say privilege at times to be with somebody when they're breathing their last breath, you, you're concerned. Are you comfortable? Are you doing okay? Uh, ooh, are, can I get you a blanket? Can I get you a pillow? You're, you're attending to their needs. And so this friend was dying, and the friend stood up over him, and he said, and it was an older story, he said, is it well? This is what he said to his friend, is it well? Are you, are you okay? Do you need anything? And I love this response. The guy, the believer looked up, he smiled and said, yes, it's well, because it's finished. And he said, And upon that, I can hang my whole eternity. And I love that statement because it takes me back to this passage. And aren't you grateful to the Lord Jesus Christ that this is what he lived for? Aren't you grateful that he lived for this, that this was his food? Because if he didn't accomplish salvation 2,000 years ago, we're all going to hell in a handbasket or a shopping cart or whatever basket you wanna put us in. We don't have a chance. Praise God for Jesus Christ who thought this way And see, we can think this way too, as it relates to our life. And you know what? There may be someone in eternity someday that tracks you down into heaven and says your name and says, you don't know me, but because you bought into what we're reading about in John 4, you desire to finish the work that God had set out for you. You desire to walk in the will of God that he designed for you. I'm here today because of you. Don't you want that to be true? <laughs> Don't you want to have that happen one day in heaven? People maybe even waiting in line to give you a hug, but just say, man, you were the one that pointed me to Jesus Christ or someone you pointed to Jesus Christ pointed me to Jesus Christ. And if we, if the Lord tarries and generation goes upon generation, that there would this be this, this, uh, spider web or, or family tree that all finds its, one of its origins in you. What a privilege. But it's not going to happen if we're worried about our will, getting our work done, focusing on what we want to do and what we won't do. And I hear believers say all the time, oh, I will never do that. And I'm just like, whoa, that's like fingernails on the chalkboard. From a human level, I completely understand. But from what Jesus is talking about, I don't understand that comment. I don't understand that comment because that's not biblical thinking. That is thinking I'm going to do it how I want to do it, regardless of what God wants. Now, we would never say that. We'd be afraid we'd get struck by lightning. (laughs) We would never say that, but oftentimes this is how we live our life. Again, Jesus is subtly trying to challenge thinking. chipping away at their thinking. So again, when Jesus was hungry, full, thirsty, satiated, tired, well-rested, none of the human experiences mattered in the grand scheme of God's work. And here's why the heartbeat of our attitude on every given day and just kind of tying in some other truth from Romans chapter 6 and Romans chapter 12 should be this, Lord, I present my body to you. By faith, I'm, I'm here. In fact, the word present means I'm standing near. Now, why would you stand near to the Lord? In case he wants to deploy you. In case he has an assignment for you. But the mindset is not, I'm going to stand over here and get up and do what I want to do when I want to get it. It is literally, we are standing, presented to him, waiting for deployment, waiting for assignment. Because we know he's got things and good works that he wants us to walk in. And so this is our heart attitude. Oftentimes, we are too occupied with our own will. We're too occupied with finishing our work. This is what we occupy ourselves with, unfortunately. And if God wants to extract additional good works out of us when you're exhausted, hungry, tired, thirsty, we wanna allow him to extract those good works out of us. We don't wanna be distracted. Now, let me just say this. There are times where due to illness, disease, sickness, you're not able to. I, I get that. I'm not, I'm not trying to get extreme. I'm just saying there's more opportunities that we probably waste if we would just simply rely on the Lord's resources to get them done, and, and stop justifying our thinking like, "Oh, well, I, you know, I hadn't eaten since twelve, and it's already five 30, You know, I mean, miss a meal, it, it'll be okay. I think we'll all survive if if we miss a meal, uh, proverbially. You know, and this these physical things that often distract us. Now, one of the things, like a good teacher, Jesus is now going to give us a physical agricultural example that his disciples would understand. We don't understand because many of us have never farmed. um, And so we're going to have to bring this up to speed for us. But he likens it to sowing and reaping. We understand conceptually that when we put a seed in the ground, we don't just go out the next day and get a crop. Okay? It's not this immediate gratification. It takes some time for the seed to kind of produce a crop. But what Jesus's encouragement is here, that's true in the natural realm, But guess what, guys? I got something exciting for you. It's not true in the spiritual realm. And and what he's saying is, for those of you that are impatient and you like to see a harvest right away, spiritual ministry is right up your alley then because you can drop a seed and experience the harvest immediately. And this is what he's using, I think, to encourage them to quit just putting stuff off and looking down the road and not considering even Samaritans as potential beneficiaries of the ministry. And so let's look at verse 35. He says, do, do you not say there are still four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields, for they are already white for harvest. And he uses this four-month time frame because it's kind of a typical time frame. For crops, uh, sowing seed and reaping a harvest—just kind of a well-known time frame—they would have understood. We we don't because we've never. Well, some of us have never planted anything. Well, I've never planted anything. <laughs> some of y'all might have, but it takes a little bit of time. So he just uses that as a typical time frame, and then he's going to give three commands here. Three commands in this statement: "Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields, and we're going to get a glimpse of the world." through the eyes of Jesus Christ. This is how Jesus Christ saw the world as he lived in it on earth. These are what we might call the glasses of Jesus Christ. He is literally taking them off and he's trying to put them on each one of us right now. And he's doing this for his disciples. First thing he says, the first command is to behold. It's a demonstrative particle. It's got the idea of look, pay attention to something exterior or external myself. The idea is put your phone down, put your paper down, pause your video, stop doing what you're doing and look and pay attention to what I'm about to say. Second command is to lift up your eyes and by implication at the fields. Lift up is a compound word comprised of two words in the Greek. Epi means upon. Iro means to lift up. And the idea is you're to lift up your eyes and place your eyes on the fields is the idea. Now we're going to talk about some implications there, but the point is this, look up from whatever you're looking at, whatever's presently distracting you, take your eyes off of that and lift them up on to the fields is what he's saying here. And the implication is this, what are you waiting for? That's the implication. What are you waiting for? You got to go bury a cow. There's always going to be something that we're waiting for. Do you understand that? No, nobody gets to their deathbed and said, "Oh, I wish I would have been more. I wish I would have been more involved with all my hobbies." They, what do they typically say? I wish I'd have spent more time with my family. I wish I'd have spent more time in ministry. There's lots of things because at that point, for some reason, on our deathbed, we just get extreme mental clarity of what's important, and we get distracted every other day before that for most of our life. It's incredible. It's incredible to see that. No waiting period. God's prepared hearts. Do you believe in Noonan, Georgia, that God has prepared hearts of people who have never heard the gospel to hear the gospel and respond today? Do you think that could happen today? Do you think you could bear fruit today? Do you think you could reap a harvest today? I have no doubt in my mind. Do you have any doubts in your mind? The harvest is ready. The harvest is ripe and it's white. And so the idea is don't let these physical distractions get in the way. Don't let them distract you from right, you know what's right in front of you. In fact, the implication, as I've said before, is we've got to get our eyes. If we lift up our eyes, it means get your eyes off yourself. Get them off your feet. Get them off your agenda. Get them off your hobby horse. Get them off your plans for your pretty little Christian life that's got to go perfect, and you're just gripping control of every circumstance in the world. We've got to get our eyes off of that. There's something going on outside of the two-foot circle that you can draw around your own feet. And and we've got to understand this. God has got fields placed before us. A lot more could be said there, but let me move on. Third command, look at the fields. The the word look means to wonder, to behold, or to view attentively. Jesus is saying, look, guys, if you'll just look up, (laughs) you're going to see what I see. You're going to be in wonder and awe of it all because there are people who are ready to receive this message. All you got to do is tell them and you're going to reap a harvest. One commentator said, the trouble's not that the fields are white, the trouble's that the laborers are not ready. And I think that is the issue. I think that is the issue. We, uh, again, I, as graciously as I can put, I include myself in here. We get distracted. Man, we get distracted. Man, we're easily distracted. It doesn't even hardly take much. You know, we're all the, the guy that's talking and then the squirrel runs by. And we're like, oh, squirrel. You know, I mean, we're all the squirrel guy when it comes down to it in our lives. Very interesting point. Jesus, in verse 35, and this will be kind of the last point. Verse 35, behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes, look at the field. So why does he give these three commands? Notice the word for. They're already white for harvest. This is the reason why Jesus gave these commands. Put your phone down, look up. Put your eyes upon the field. They're ready for harvest. What's really fascinating here is this, that there's no fields in Israel when you harvest crop that the field is white when it's ready to harvest. It's like, so why does he use this? Because it's very specific. They're, the fields are, it doesn't say the fields are ready for harvest. It says it's already white. He uses a color here. And you're like, well, that's weird. I was just doing some research. There's like, there's no fields in Israel when you harvest crop that they're white. So you're like, what is Jesus talking about? It really, really fascinating what he's talking about here because it was widely known that Samaritan men wore long white robes. And the woman had told the men, come see this man. We learned from all the way back up in verse 30 that they were coming out to him And so I believe as Jesus is teaching his disciples to get their eyes off of themselves and up on the fields that these Samaritan men are making their way out from the city of Sychar, probably walking through grain fields as he's speaking to them. And he says, look, here they come. It's kind of the idea look, here they come. And so, you know, perhaps even as Jesus spoke these words, there was just a large group of Samaritan men winding their ways in the fields up to them. And he just points over to them using again, a physical illustration while he's teaching, while he's discipling them to show them. And so next week, we're going to get a little bit of a chance uh, to look at that harvest as we kind of continue in John chapter four. Let's close there with a word of prayer. Lord, I do thank you for your word. And uh, Lord, as, I, as we think about the way Jesus was, uh, in so many ways, just challenging the thinking of the disciples in, in this particular setting, Lord, take, take those truths and apply them to each one of our lives. There's so much going on with each one of us. And Lord, we need wisdom. We need wisdom. Some of us are hurting uh, emotionally. Some of us are hurting and carrying a lot of baggage relationally. Uh, some of us are hurting and we don't even know why. Some of us are just in a dry period. And yet, Lord, we know we're convinced of many things, but one in particular, we're convinced that you love us and that nothing can change that. We're convinced that you've got a, a will for our lives and nothing can change that. We're convinced that you've got even good works that you've designed us specifically to walk in. Nothing can change that. As we think about those things, may we just rest and enjoy the Lord Jesus Christ. May he just be exalted in our thinking as we leave this morning. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.